Welcome to I've Always Wanted to Watch That, a spin-off podcast from the Average Joe's Movie Club cast. I'm Justin. In this episode, I'll be chatting with my longtime Letterboxd and AJMCC pal Max about a bunch of movies, including John luc Godard's Pierre LeFou. <laughs> we'll put my French to the test today. Um, welcome, Max. I'm so glad we're finally getting to talk without the crutch of a keyboard between us. <laughs> yes, I think you for having me on. So um, I know you're pretty selective about your fo- who you follow on Letterboxd. Uh, so what brought, put me on your radar and um, has had you following me all this time? I like the like the reviews, and I only follow about eighteen people because I want to really read some of these reviews. And if I have uh-huh. fifty people on my list, I can't read them all. Sure. And I read one or two reviews, so I liked them, so I continued reading them, and they got better and better, more interesting, and I said, "Well, this is worth it." So <laughs> uh, let's see how where this goes. And so far, it's been what three years now. It seems like it. Um, yeah, so. yeah, I'm always. Uh, it's always great to see your face pop up under uh, liking my reviews. I wish I could like more of your reviews, but you're pretty selective about what you write about, huh? Yeah, I really need to be in the mood, and I, I have mm-hmm. this feeling that I have to say something useful or, or basically that. I'm, I'm not really a writer. Ah, I'm more gotcha. of a watcher. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. I know we opened up um, a really interesting conversation one time with. At least one other person, I think, around a taxi driver. Um, we were really getting into the western, <laughs> some of the uh, mm-hmm. western analog. Yeah, I still think it's a it's a western, a modern day western. Mm-hmm. And where Clint Eastwood rode a horse, uh, Robert De Niro where drives a car. Yeah. And taxi. granted, Jodie Foster was twelve years old, and I saw Clint Eastwood do that. Get interested in a twelve year old, luckily. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of um, there's a lot of I was gonna say it overlap between a modern day uh, movie like Taxi Driver and uh, the the westerns of 100 years ago. Yeah, you have the good guy, the bad guy, uh, a grimy desert, a grimy city, mm-hmm. desperation, people really wondering what they uh, where they are going with their lives. Yeah, a lot of good parallels there. We should really continue that discussion. It was fun. All right. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you're, um, I guess, from from Europe somewhere, right? Yeah, the Netherlands. So okay. my apologies for the accent. Oh, no problem. <laughs> um, I love film. I've always been watching film. It's mostly the fault of my mother. She took me to cinemas when I was three years old. And those were uh, kids' movies and gangster movies. So I grew up on a steady diet in the 70s, 80s on gangster films. Okay. Um, Don't have a criminal record, though, so it worked out well. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Um, I basically will watch anything. I will give it a try. If I like Mm -hmm. it, I will continue watching it. Um, If I don't like it, I will watch about half of it, unless it's really awful. Like Project X, I just stop okay. watching it after about um, 10 minutes. But if it's interesting, I'll give it a try. Okay. Um, I prefer drama. Okay. Comedies, uh, like comedy, but I have a very difficult uh, relationship with humor. The, 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 the things I like aren't always mainstream. Okay. Well, uh, have you seen The Cremator? It's a movie. I haven't seen that one yet. I've heard of it. 
It's a very good movie. It's very dark. Where's it from? Is that an Asian film or? It's, I believe, Czechoslovakian. Oh, it's a Czech. Okay. okay. I've seen it a long time ago. But it's a very good movie. It's out on Blu-ray. I think a Criterion release is coming. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I think I've heard that floating around. I'll have to put that yeah, up on my really, watch list. You should really watch it. Okay. I still hope yeah. the Criterion comes to Europe because uh, Americans have an advantage over us Europeans in that area. Oh, yeah. Criterion wow. Channel. Mm-hmm. I Absolutely. tried a VPN, but they don't accept European credit cards. Oh, no. Yeah, that's no so, good. It's... I have to live without Criterion. There are worse things, but not many. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bummer not to be able to be uh, not able to watch certain things. Uh, yeah, we're pretty um, fortunate here over in the U.S. Lots of stuff's available. Yeah. But um, before we get into this uh, artsy French flick, let's um, hear more about your taste in movies in our twenty-five question movie blitz. Okay. okay. Uh, what is something you would say that instantly gets you invested in a film? Good opening scene. Okay. And the best opening scene I've ever seen was in Inglorious Bastards. Oh. Uh, Hans Lada is, 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 is basically a monologue. And when he starts talking, it just grips you. There's already a little thing ahead of the film. But when he just starts talking, it just sucks you right in. And that's really important. It isn't so much a hook. It just has to be a good opening. It has to be interesting. It doesn't even have to be dialogue. Um, I've seen a movie about 30 years ago. And it was just uh, the first 10 minutes was no, no, no speech, just image. And it was beautifully made. And it just sucked you right in. So that's that's the most important thing for me. Good opening. Have you ever seen a shock corridor? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, it's a Samuel Fuller film. That's kind of what brought it to. Um, that's one of my favorite openings. It just kind of takes you out of nowhere, and it's just like this this instance of I think um, some kind of domestic fight going on just right off the top, and it's like whoa, <laughs> didn't see that coming. But um, we'll be talking more about Samuel Fuller uh, coming up. So. No, he yeah. was in the movie, so... All right, what would you say uh, your first movie theater experience that you remember was? Uh, that's a long time ago. I'm almost 50. Okay. Um, a children's film. Okay. Uh, later found out it was based on a book by Eric Kessner. It's literally translated means the flying uh, classroom. Oh, okay. That and it was, yeah, it was a kids' movie in the cinema. My mom took me. I was about four, four and a half years old. And it was just fun. I think Very it's cool. falling around on YouTube. Okay. Well, I've seen the subtitles. Yeah. It's a flying make classroom. a running list. <laughs> oh, I got uh, If you let me, I'll give you a list so long. You won't have enough years in your life to watch them all. Yes, I was. Uh, I think I had um, some. Somehow we got on the topic of German war films, and yeah, you really unleashed with a great list. I still need to dive into more of those. So little time, so many movies. Yeah, I know. <laughs> if you could um, see one more film from an actor, actress, or director that's now uh, has passed away, um, who would that be, and what kind of film would you want to see him in? Oh wow, that's a good question. Um... That's a really good question. 
I'd love to see another movie by uh, Paolo Pretzberger. Okay. You know, uh, they did uh, Peeping Tom, something like that again. Okay. It, it, it broke his career, sadly. It was probably the best movie he's ever made and completely broke his career, Michael Powell. Which one are you? did you say? Um... Peeping Tom. Oh, Peeping Tom. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a good one. It's Crazy the best movie ever made. Year as, uh, Psycho. Yeah, yeah I was impressed when I saw movie. it. It's a better movie. And it completely broke his career. It made Alfred Hitchcock's career psycho, and mm -hmm. he then broke his career. It was the first movie he did without Pretzberger. Mm -hmm. Completely broke his career. It's really no explanation why. All right. I'd love to see a movie like that by uh, those two together. Because he did it alone, and maybe with Pretzberger, it would be more, uh, more uh, fewer friendly. Yeah, I yeah, because most of what it's you see the from them is film. very um, kind of as a classic family film kind of feel to most of their stuff. Yeah. So, all right. Do you have any uh, movie pet peeves? A, uh, I really watch everything. Um, so I don't like. Uh, I call it MTV montage. So okay. instead of a scene that lasts 30 seconds or a minute, it becomes 10 seconds, 10 seconds, 10 seconds. Uh -huh. Some movies just have it. And it doesn't even have to be a cheap film. Some uh, really expensive films have this uh, this, this speedy uh, montage, and it just doesn't work for me. When you say MTV montage, does it particularly have to have like kind of a, a some upbeat music to it, or just, just kind of montage no, in general? No, it's just really the montage the okay. music is not really the problem it's really they uh they jump from a to b to c to a to b to c to b to a you know okay. what i mean and mm -hmm. i just don't like it it really started with mtv the late 80s early 90s mm -hmm. and it used to be you had long scenes and they become shorter and shorter and shorter and it doesn't work for me that's the really only thing that i really don't like um, Generally, I'm I'm pretty forgiving for film uh, for film mistakes, and I find that's really a mistake. How about a uh, good old Rocky montage? Do you feel the same way about that? Mm, yeah. Okay. I'm willing to go with that. Cool. Stick into it. Stick into it. Um, can you think of a movie that made you laugh like just the most memorable, uh, hilarious moment in a movie you can really think of? Uh, wow. Most of the producers, okay. the musical when it starts, and then particularly the audience, the reaction to all of it. Other mm -hmm. okay. shock. It's just, it's just beautifully done. I've shamefully only seen the remake. I need to see that original with. Uh, oh, you need to see the original. The remake doesn't even get close. <laughs> That's what I've heard. Okay. It's, it's just beautiful. Also, um, uh, another film is also by Mel Brooks, um, uh -huh. Blazing Saddles. When the sheriff oh, sure. comes to town and everybody's in shock, it's a black sheriff. Yeah. And he comes there, hello, I'm your sheriff. And they are in absolute shock. Mm -hmm. What's the, uh, the sexiest film that comes to mind? Sexiest film. I'll tell you, there's a lot of sexy moments in this one, but we'll get there. Yeah. Um, this is going to sound strange because it's not really sexy. Uh, okay. It's in Breathless. Uh, 
You're lying oh, okay. in bed. Well, mm-hmm. he's lying in bed. He's smoking, and yeah. she's walking around, and it's just sexy. Uh, it's it's real simple. It's not actually. There's no. She no nudity or anything. It's all really very polite, and and and, and there's nothing shocking, but it's it's still mm-hmm. sexy. I have no idea why. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I was definitely getting some vibes of that kind of uh, yeah. sensuality in this movie. There's a little oh. good interaction between uh, both actors. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that, the action, that's the, the scene that goes on and on. Yeah, the interaction between both of them is actually better, I feel, than between uh, Belmondo and Anna Karina in uh, Pirot. I thought that there was an interaction, but um, when she says Pirot, which means uh, Pirot the Fool means sad clown, or silly sad clown, yeah. I don't think it really was acting. It, it was, I don't think she really respected him as, a, as an actor. It could be me. Maybe that was just my interpretation, but I don't think that was really uh, that much respect for each other on, on set. And in Breathless, you see you see two actors who really know um, how to act and also have respect for each other's talent. Cool. All right. Let's see here. Um, your favorite camera work in a film? Favorite camera work? Oh. I always forget his name, but it was the Heaven's Gate. Oh, Malik? Oh, Malik, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, Heaven's Gate. That would be. Um, uh... oh, that's from Malik. Yeah. Oh, uh, um... I think it's on Malik. Have... Let's see here. <laughs> or am I wrong here? I think it was Heaven... on Heaven's Gate, the Western. Legendary flop, very uh, undeserving. Okay. Yeah, that Those was. Those shots um... are just brilliant. Okay, the Camino, the 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 Chimino film. Yeah. Let me see who the cinematographer on that. That yeah, that's great cinematography, in that one. It's um, very. Um... Vilmos Zygodman. Are you sure? Because Ma- somebody else. I'm trying to think of what the Malik film is. Because I thought you were talking about the um, Heavens. Let me look over my shelf real quick. I'm so embarrassed. Um, let's see here. Um, like 19th century painting landscapes, the, the, the big ones. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of that. It's basically uh, using a camera instead of a, a brush. This is beautifully shot. I have three versions of it on Blu-ray. I've watched all three versions in a row once uh, last Christmas. I don't think I logged it in in Letterboxd. No, in a row, uh, huh? Because all three of them. Wow. Um, yeah, I think I've only seen the the the, the longest cut, and I think my my only, my only problem with Chimino is I don't think he's the, the greatest writer, but I think his visuals are amazing. Um, so I've got quite a few arguments on Letterbox about not really enjoying the Deer Hunter as much as everybody, <laughs> but I I do have to um, marvel at the great. look of the movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree with the story. The the story of the Deer Hunter is. It's a basic story, nothing special. Uh-huh. You could put it in a gangster surroundings instead of a war, and you would get the same result. But the way it's shot, it's just beautiful. Uh-huh. He didn't do many movies. I think he did about five or six of them. Yeah. He, died. Uh, he did very yeah, few. Really went... 
And I saw Heaven's Gate, the second version I saw with the sound off. So I watched the whole movie without uh, sound. Just picture. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it just looks beautiful. It's just, uh, it's just perfect. That's how you, how you film a film. Yeah, I need to get back to that one. The first time I saw it was on like Amazon and it was still like kind of the sepia tone version. So I believe the Blu-ray I have over there um, has the more, the better color in it. So I'm looking forward to getting yeah, back to that one. Yeah, it also depends on uh, the publisher. I think Criterion actually mm -hmm. got, a, a, I think I got mine from Criterion. I'm not sure, but um, they got the coloring uh, often wrong in issues in the transfers and i have one uh where the column is actually just how it's supposed to be and sometimes a bit unsettling hmm. so, how so uh first time i watched it i thought the transfer had failed oh okay uh slightly washed out and then later and because normally uh, with private ryan you see these washed out colors Mm -hmm. And in this one you have the two, but not all of the time. So I thought the transfer had failed in certain parts. Oh, inconsistent. Okay. Yeah. So I looked it up on, on uh, online, and it turns out this is uh, how it's supposed to be. So but, uh, it's, it's just beautiful. It's not my favorite film. I don't think I have a favorite film, but this is really just perfectly shot. Okay. Very few films will look like that. Um, Doctor Zhivago comes in close yeah. in epic land scenes. Yeah, David Lean movies between yeah, um, Chivago and Lawrence of Arabia, mm. Great Gate on um, Great Great um, on um, on site photography. Mm. Okay, uh, favorite black and white movie. Favorite, but oh wow, uh, that's a question. Yeah, it's quite a few of them. Yes, I've seen a few of them that I really like. So it's really between. Um, Nosferatu, 1922, by Mornal. Okay. And also Mornal film. Uh, well, no. Uh, uh, Metropolis. Did you like the extended, the extended version of Metropolis? Yeah, the extended, extended version. So including the missing scenes in the, in the bar, the old dancing that used to be missing, and they found it back. Uh -huh. uh, I watched it twice now, and it's just perfect. Yeah, maybe I like Nosferatu a bit more than Metropolis. But it's still, uh, Metropolis is a good sci-fi movie, but it's been overtaken by better sci-fi movies. Uh, I need to yeah. see more Fritz Lang. I was really impressed with that uh, that M when I first oh, saw yes. that. So um, I think it was the first sound film in Germany. Oh, that one or the Blue Angel, or maybe both of them. I think it was M was the first sound film in Germany. That's uh, a perfect it's... transition to uh, what's your uh, favorite German language film? <laughs> Nosferatu. Okay. Um, what are your feelings on my... like? Have you seen Go many ahead. German films? Probably not near enough. Um, I I do need to get back into that. Um, what's the B BDR? Um, uh, trilogy. First, mean this trilogy. Mm -hmm. I've only seen the first one of those. I need to finish that uh, up. Marriage of uh, Maria Brown. Mm -hmm. mm. And really enjoyed going through um, Berlin Alexanderplatz. 
Still need to see the other versions of that, but um, that was quite the experience. There's a new version. There's actually there are three versions of that. There's a mm -hmm. 1931 film with uh, Heinz Georg, which at the time was considered one of the greatest living German actors. Um, then is the Fassbinder version, and then there is a very recent, about two years ago, there was a, a interpretation of the book with an immigrant who mm -hmm. plays uh, an immigrant version of Franz Pibakov. Well, I, I have heard mixed reviews. Critics loved it. Friends of mine saw a movie and hated it. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a difficult one. Because it's really just, there's it a different approach. Instead of a convicted criminal, we have a, a immigrant who's looking for a better life. And I feel that doesn't really work with the story. Whenever the Fassbender um, miniseries was out, did you uh, catch any of it at the time? Uh, I had the DVD version. Okay. Uh, before that, I had the VHS version, okay. a, a very badly copied VHS version. And when I was, it wasn't Dutch television when I was a little kid, and my parents watched it, and I was about six, I believe. Okay. We had uh, stairs, and I could sit on the stairs, and I could watch in the living room, and that's how I watched my first movies. Yep. And, uh, that's a familiar tale for many of us. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I saw uh, first being this uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz. Okay. Um, any preference between getting to stream movies versus going to the theater? I like the theater more. Sure. It has a better sound. We saw Blade Runner a few years ago, and I'd seen it quite a few times on television. Uh, it has, yeah, I have a 5.1 uh, set. Sound is good, but in the cinema you get more. You really get a 3D immersion uh, sound-wise. But streaming has its uh, advantages in the area of older movies. You can see movies now, uh, even if you don't have criteria, you can see movies from 1920 uh, or older. So it's a bit, uh, it's, it's, it's not black and white, it's a lot of gray. It has its advantages, it has its disadvantages. It really depends on uh, what you're looking for. Um, Netflix in the Netherlands now has a lot of uh, old British movies from the 50s and 60s. Movies that I haven't seen on television in 30, 35 years. So that's an advantage. So I can't really say which I prefer more, uh, theater or uh, television or streaming service. Yeah, streaming service is definitely convenient being able to see stuff and not actually having to go out. Um, but I think I saw uh, it was Spirited Away on the big screen a few years back. And um, just having a towering, towering sc um, screen to see all these crazy um, vivid an animation is just pretty uh dazzling to the eyes um now in the netherlands are most theaters um digital or are there still film theaters around uh they've all switched to digital mm -hmm. yeah it's uh, there's nothing left as far as i know that goes with the old uh, old projection ways i don't think there are many old pro uh, operators left old projectionists who know how to use uh, the old style equipment yeah all, definitely dying, dying art yeah it's a shame because it's it, it, if I have to choose between digital and old-fashioned film, I'm going for film. It has more. Uh, you can do a lot with digital. You can make it warm as much as you want, but there's this um, inner light missing, which you do have with uh, old-fashioned projection. 
Do you own um, many movies? And if you do, what are some of your favorites? <sighs> I have a lot. We had to box them all up. We're doing the apartment, redecorating. So uh, we all had to box them up. And I have 1,152 films. Okay. And Definitely 432 of them are uh, Blu-rays. Okay. Favorite films. Oh, um, Any collector's editions or anything kind of fancy that you happen to snag? No, I have a bit of a problem. I try to buy as many movies as I can, so I look more at the... It's more the, the movies. The film good, transfer good, and everything else is a, a bonus. Okay. So uh, if it's just a film, the, the prices are low, and I can buy two movies for 15 euros instead of one with all kinds of extras. Um, I have my Heaven's, Ga my Heaven's Gate uh, box sets, all three movies. Um, I have several Fassbinder films. Uh, Nosferatu, a wonderful transfer uh, by the Modern Stiftung. That is... Uh, a, uh, an organization in the name of uh, Monau, and their prime objective is to not only restore and save and restore Monau's movies, but also other German movies. And they brought out a whole uh, a series of films that's just beautifully done. And I have several, one of them, uh, several of them, um, like I said, Nosferatu, and I believe they also were responsible for Metropolis. Um, I just bought Shadows and Fog by Woody Allen, and that's oh. just a beautiful transfer. Uh, I had it on DVD, and the transfer was pretty good, but the Blu-ray, uh, you, you see more detail. Um, oh, for sure. Asking a man what's his favorite movies, he has more than a thousand one of them. Um, Can you think of a, a film that made you mad? Whenever you're watching it, but you still enjoyed it. Mm. Yeah, there's one movie that really made me angry, and there's really no explanation for it. Frankie the Fly. I have it on DVD. It was really uh, difficult to get. I think there was also a very small uh, uh, bunch of DVDs that were published, a few thousand. And it's a fun movie. I, I, every time I watch it, um, day later, I can't remember what I watched. I know it makes <laughs> me angry, but I keep watching it. It's entertaining. It's uh, basically the last days of Frankie the Fly. Oh, interesting. I have no idea what, what the movie is, uh, why it makes me angry. It's a, it's a reasonably low budget film. It's well shot. It's nothing extraordinary. But it just makes me angry in a very happy kind of a way. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes big emotions can be uh, satisfying, regardless of <laughs> where, where they fall on the spectrum. Yeah. Would you say you, there's uh, a? Oh, go ahead. Do you have any films that make you angry for no reason? Oh my. Yeah. I was kind of racking my brain. I was I was, I was listening to you to. What would be my answer for this one? Gosh, what's something that made me... I guess watching... Gosh, is it... I guess there's a fine line between emotional and anger. Um, watching... Showa was quite the experience between, um, you know, seeing kind of the mindsets of those folks um, in regards to what they were the topic of the film, um, Holocaust, 
wise. I know there's some more political films out there that probably um, got on my nerves, but gosh, I'm kind of I'm kind of blanking. <laughs> strangely enough, maybe maybe something will have come you to seen me later. Showa. I have. That's an infuriating film. And not by the subject, but the 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 perpetrators. A lot of them are completely remorseless. They mm-hmm. they're proud of what they've done. Crazy, yeah. you, that, that's an infuriating movie. If I have to say another film, that one. That, that, but that's a that's a reasonable why you get angry. It's uh, you can explain that. Frankie the Fly, I just get angry. <laughs> 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 yeah, night and day there, but uh, that's all right. Um, was there a film or a series of films um, that might have defined uh, your childhood? That's a good one. Um, defining films in my childhood. I could say Indiana Jones, but I saw them quite late. I was already an adult. Um, almost an adult. That's a great pick. I would I would, I would probably categorize myself as a, yeah, an Indiana Jones um, to find my childhood as well. Um, after watching it, I remember wanting to be an archaeologist myself and was thrilled to watch them all back to back. Um, backtracking a little bit. Um, okay, so a film that made me angry was probably have to be my least favorite film of all time, which is uh, Lars von Trier's uh, The Idiots. Have you ever seen oh, that one? Yeah. Um... I watched the first 30 minutes and I was never able to finish it. Uh-huh. The TV went out and we never were able to, to get another copy. It was stuck in the VCR, couldn't get it out. Hope it's all story Maybe for but the best. <laughs> I, I liked it. I can understand why most people hate it. It's it's an art film. But Frontier is not exactly the most uh, accessible uh, film director. Uh-huh. I have to choose between Godard and Fontrier. Uh, I prefer Godard. He makes film and, and Fontrier wants to piss people off. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it works beautifully and then, then there's the idiots. Um, yeah. I'm real excited about um, the celebration just came out from Criterion. Um, what's the name of that Danish director again? Um, yeah, he was one of the signs of Dogma. Uh, what was it? Uh, Dogma from 95? Yeah, one of those directors. Um, um, also did Drunk from last year. I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, definitely recommend my list. Danish director. Uh, he did a lot of... Oh, Winterberg. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking of. Things kind of under uh, underappreciated. You yeah, know, I, need, uh, I need to see more of his stuff. I haven't seen Celebration. I haven't seen uh, The Hunt, but I've heard great things. And you haven't seen Celebration? You mean in the hotel? And oh, and you're in for something. It's uh, we talked about the good openings. That movie, yeah, it's not really an opening, but when there's a speech being held and what he reveals. That just hits you. It's it's um, this is a movie you should see before you die. Really. Will do. What is the uh, film you've seen the most? Would it be Nosferatu. Uh, actually, it would be Blade Runner. Okay. I had a girlfriend who loved that film. 
Ze hebben visie, ja, dus in de 90s. En ze hebben een little black. I've seen uh, Blade Runner first 32 times and watched it in black and white. She had a very small black and white television and VCR. And that's how I saw it. Every uh, every weekend the movie was on. So uh, it's, she had this obsession with it. So that's uh, the movie I've seen the most. It's very any good. Th- any thoughts it. on having the monologue versus no monologue? I prefer the file. It, it works better. If you let the, the, the picture speak for itself, the, the, the imagery works better. I like the monologue. It, it, it's not bad. It's not as awful as people make it out to be, but it becomes more of a B-film noir than what it really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, philosophical uh, approach on what makes us human. Well, I, I, by the way, um, movies that define my childhood, gangster movies. Okay. Those were really the define my childhood. I've seen a lot of them before I was 10 years old. Now, what really style would this be? Television, but I was allowed to watch a lot of gangster films. And basically anything um, uh, Jimmy Cagney or uh, B movies, the, the, the cheap ones they made in the late 40s, early 50s, the, the, the week movies uh, came in on Monday, were out on Sunday. That was, that was really defined my uh, childhood. Gangster. Yeah, a lot of good classics there. I need to see more of those. I've seen a couple. But... Mm. All right. Uh, what is the next movie you um, have always wanted to watch? So basically how we came together with this is I, I asked you if you're interested to come on and talk about uh, Pierre Le Fou. And you're like, oh, that'll work. Um, let's say if you were to come on again in the future, well, what would be your pick for something you've always wanted to check out and bring you along for the ride? Mm. It's a good one. If you had asked me that two weeks ago, I would have said Breathless, but I've seen that one now. Um, that's a really good question. There's a first been the television series. Um, let me see what was the name. Acht stunden sind kein tag. Eight hours aren't a day, or eight hours don't make up a day. And it's a, mm-hmm. uh, a flashback in the series. It's not as known as uh, Belly and Alexander Plots. Mm-hmm. I think there were about 12 episodes. And it's, yeah, more, toned, it's more toned down than um, Belly and Alexander Plots. I haven't seen it, um, not even on one single scene. And uh, I'm curious. That or. Uh, Germany, Pell Mother, or Pell Mother, Germany. That's also a movie. I don't think it's first been there. I think it's for Toyota. Let me see who else. I can't remember who the director is. I just got it in uh, a week ago. And that's a movie I still want to watch. So maybe I should wait for it. Maybe we can do this again. Yeah. That's a really good movie. <laughs> yeah. There are not movies. 33,000 movies in the world, I've been told. <laughs> so you have enough to choose from. Oh, absolutely. Can you think any of a film that... Movies, uh, you have oh, any favorite ahead. movies left you want to see? Oh, good question. Um, I've been knocking them off like crazy, but I'm sure there's some still some stuff out there. But actually, my inspiration for starting this show was um, this movie called Sneakers. Um, 90s movie, a... Robert mm-hmm. Redford, a group of hackers, am I correct? Yep. And um, that was always on our shelf, and I just never got to it. 
Um, I've been putting Overlord yeah, we off for a while. Yeah, talked about that, I believe, in our letterbox, the last scene, where you ask for the girl's number, you can ask anything you want, and you ask for a number. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's one of the most romantic scenes ever. What else jumps ahead to my... I think uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, that's pretty high up there for one of the ones that I, oh, I still need to catch. That's a real good one. But yeah, I've been pretty fortunate, fortunate to watch a lot of the classics I put off for a long time. Like, finally saw The Apartment a few years ago and King Kong and the list goes on and on. That's a good... Um... I can't remember who brought uh, I think it was Arrow, uh, Blu-ray um, publishing. Let me see. I think it was Arrow. There's a, a Blu-ray with the apartment, and I think it was uh, done by Arrow, and it's uh, a really good transfer. I think they restored one scene that was missing. I read something about that. Yeah, I need to give that one another chance now that I know um, his work a little better now. One that I need to read. The first one I saw from Wilder was uh, Lost Weekend. And I saw that back in college, so I didn't really probably appreciate it nearly as much as I would now. But um, It's a good Blu-ray transfer uh, out of that one. I uh, bought it last year, watched it, and the transfer is perfect. Like, really perfect. It's as good as digital can get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you, you ever bought it already. Do you okay. have the Blu-ray? Of which one? The apartment? Uh, last weekend. No, oh, last no, no. weekend. Yeah. No, I think the only Wilder film I own is Some Like It Hot. And that's one of my favorites. Usually I, I only buy films whenever I know I love them. So that's... Yeah, that's, that's worth to buy because the transfer is really good, really well done. Mm-hmm. And not just image-wise, also sound-wise. It's, just, it's one of the few movies that I should have bought a lot earlier. What's a what's a real confusing film that um, by the end it kind of clicked in and you appreciated it way more since you'd kind of finally understood it? Mm. Solaris. I had to watch it twice. Which one was it? Solaris. Oh, Solaris. Uh, um, the Tarkovsky. Uh, Solaris. Yeah. Okay. I had to watch it twice. Yep, that actually, um, probably my answer would probably be Mir. That was my first Tarkovsky, and I was so lost. Um, That one actually, that one just had a good um, Blu-ray came out a couple years ago. But uh, yeah, Mir was, I was totally lost, and then I finally got what he was doing at the end, and I was like, oh, this. And I pretty much had the same experience watching it the second time. It's There's just some directors, they can... um, like Mulholland Drive, I've seen three times, and every time I'm just totally lost until I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I had a friend explain it to me, Mulholland Drive, and he said that you really should watch the second part first and the first part second, and okay. then it becomes more clear. So oh, my bad. No, <laughs> it's David Lynch, so clear is optional. Um, I haven't seen Mirror yet. It's high on my list of movies I still want to see. That one is Stalker. Although I've been told that Stalker is a difficult one. Um, it's probably so, uh, the same caliber as um, Solaris. Okay. Solaris. 
Have you seen the, the television series, Solaris, Russian or Soviet uh, television series, late Ooh, no. 60s? I, I have not. I, didn't, I had not even realized it was a TV series. Yeah. That'd be cool. I've enjoyed all the, because I saw, um, what was it, Decalogue, the Polish um, miniseries. So, that'd yeah, be interesting that to, to see more of that. Uh, French were Polish. Uh, be, I told them, the, 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 I never heard of it. Uh, Polish television series. Really? Yeah, well, never heard of it. So I'm going to be watching that very soon with them. Oh, so I'm uh, curious what they're going to think of it. What's What What in a, a horror film will actually scare you, kind of get under your skin, kind of make you keep thinking about it later that night? Nothing. Okay. Uh, horror films don't scare me. Uh, I was uh, seven years old. I sneaked into my parents went to bed early. It was Saturday evening, and I went downstairs, turned on the television, and saw The Exorcist. Yeah. When I was seven years old, and I turned on the television right at the moment where she is on the bed, turns her head, and all that. After that, mm, horror doesn't really scare me anymore. Not as uh, as it used to be. Yeah, I saw that at a pretty young age myself, and um, it took a while to get some of those images out. Um, but every now and then I come across something that's pretty unsettling. I was just thinking of uh, Rosemary's Baby is kind of a, an unsettling one in terms of um, just like somebody's body not having control of it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, body, um, body movies, Cronenberg, what does yeah. that do to you? scary or disgusting oh well, what do i think of them um i think they're pretty pretty cool <laughs> to be honest um i had a great time with scanners and the fly was was pretty wild um i guess the most messed up one is a video drone um but uh i, I find those quite uh um fun um i guess what really gets under my skin is whenever you get into the mutilation stuff like in like antichrist or like solo and stuff like that where it's like people doing self-harm that really that really makes me cringe up <laughs> um, um uh, that horror movie that came out a few years ago in set in sweden uh mid's not midnight summer what's it called there's a lot of of gruesome death Mm-hmm. Two people jump to the deaths, to all uh, elderly people. They no longer serve the community, so they end oh. their lives. Oh, you're um, talking about uh, Midsummer? Yeah, Midsummer. Uh, extreme or... You went, well, it's doable. Yeah, that one was that was pretty intense, but uh, enjoyable at the same time in the strangest way. Yeah, it's like kind of like a car wreck. You don't want to watch, but you still watch. Uh-huh. It's uh, odd hypno- uh, hypnotic. Godard yeah. likes to do that as well. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, well, Godard, it's not really shocking. It's, well, maybe it's unsettling. Well, maybe more it's, uh, more of a challenging your ideas and preconceptions. And this, uh, this was more of, uh, let's make the viewer feel really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you think of a real memorable trip to the the movies? Maybe with some friends, or the audience was real rowdy, or anything like that. Um, 
it was in Belgium once. It was the beginning of the 90s. And this, I think it was kind of a pop-up cinema in a, in a basement or a cellar, really. And a fist fight broke out. Oh my goodness. Between a man and a woman. And I think they heard, she heard something that was said on the screen and he disagreed. So, yeah, a man and a woman, they were early 20s, pretty drunk, uh, ending up in a fist fight. It was pretty memorable. In general, yeah, the weird Do things you know, don't really have her head. Do you remember what you were watching? It was a Belgian movie. I can't. Um, Coco Flanel. Oh, okay. It's a uh, Belgian movie. Urbanus is uh, stand-up, well, stand-up comedian, um, sort of stand-up comedian, uh, European style. So there's jokes and there's singing. And he made a couple of movies, and one of them was Coco Flanel. And they show that, and it's it's a comedy film. It's you can take your kids to it. It's very innocent, and a fist fight broke out in that in that show. That was, that was weird. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. No wonder. Glad you explained the movie a little bit. Adds yeah, even more kind of uh, it's, some uh, funny I context. Think it's on YouTube. Uh, I don't think there's any English sub uh, subtitles, but I think it's on mm -hmm. YouTube. It's a fun movie. It's, uh, Do you have a, f a favorite one to recommend to friends? Max. Okay. Yep, and you have done that, and I needed to make time to watch it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I can't explain what it is. I just love the film. I, uh, I watched it with, uh, with a friend of mine a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. She said it's a nice film, but I don't see the the, the the fascination with it. It's it's nice. It's well made, but it's nothing spectacular. It's a small story. Uh, it's not big budget. And I have this fascination with it, and I really just basically try to sell it to everyone. Watch this film. The director's kind of... Sorry? I was definitely need to make time to watch it sooner than later now. Um, next one on my plate is uh, Around the World in 80 Days, and I was kind of taken aback by it, because it, it starts off with that um, the Millie's, uh film, um, Earth to the Moon. And I wasn't expecting that at all. And so far, it's like not gotten to the point at all. So, uh, so far, so bad on that one. But we'll we'll see how it goes with the rest of the two hours and 45 minutes I have left. It's a long, long movie. I don't think I've seen it yet. I yeah, I have. Two, uh, and this actually transitions is perfect to our next question. I have two more um, Best Picture Oscar winners to go. Uh, yeah, Around the World in 80 Days and uh, Gigi, which I've heard that's quite pedophilic in nature, so that'll be... I've seen it only once. Uh, I was 16, and it gave me... Yeah, it, made me, it gave me a dirty feeling, but it's not something I would uh, really recommend to anybody on the age of 21. Okay. Uh, it's a bit achy, to a degree. Yeah. I watched now, Cuties on Netflix, and that's less icky than Gigi. Which one? Cuties. Oh. I watched that, and that was less icky. So, again, it gives you an idea. Now, uh, what would you say your uh, favorite Oscar winner was, whether it be Best Picture, or Director, or Actress? Or... Oh, Do you pay wow. any attention much to the Oscars? Never. I watched it once, just to get it over with. 
And I really don't pay any attention to favorite Oscar winner. I think Taxi Driver was an Oscar winner. It won some stuff, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Not Best Picture. But, Not Best Picture. Um, mm. yeah, uh, Marty didn't win until Departed. Far, far after. Well, for Aviator. I thought he was for Aviator. Didn't he? Uh, no, that was uh, the year of uh, Million Dollar Baby. So uh, Clint Eastwood oh, yeah. swiped at that mm. time. Yeah, he's been kind of been, uh, it's a good movie to depart, but uh, Taxi Driver is so much better. Or Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. It's the last out to drive with Miss Daisy. This is still a remarkable choice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is this. Uh, well, let's, let me double check that. Um, I think I lost a Driving Miss Daisy. I think it lost out to Dancing with Wolves. Mm, not a bad film, but. Okay. Uh, what's the? Can you think of the craziest film you've seen? Crazy, obviously, being pretty subjective. House of Bobbin. House of Bobbin. House of Bobbin. What, what was a that about? It's a screwball film, and to describe it is near impossible. <laughs> uh, a group of producers want to make a film, and it's basically a film inside of a film inside of a film. To give you an idea, there's a man who walks in and his first appearance a few minutes into the film and he's holding a small plant in a pot and he pops up every so and, uh, and every now and then and every time he shows up, the plant is bigger and in the end of the movie he's basically walking around with a palm tree and <laughs> two producers, no director and a writer I believe, are talking and they're talking and they're walking and they open a door and they will go through the door and in a completely different movie. The different set, different lighting, everything is just different. It, it's a, uh, it's the most screwball comedy ever made. Okay. It's uh, not very well known anymore, but I've seen it once, and I have, I have the DVD. It took me three years to get the DVD, so it's not most uh, accessible movie to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just nuts. It's just What's absolutely your insane. Your favorite country for movies other than uh, Germany and the U.S. and the Netherlands? Oh, uh, the Netherlands is not my favorite movie nation. We do a lot, but we're not really that good at making films, sadly. Um, Italy. Italy? I'd say Italy, yeah. Visconti, Fellini. Those two are just Pasolini. Those three uh, already justify Italy as an, uh, a film nation, oh, one of the greatest yeah. film nations. Yeah, I need to get back into more Fellini. It's been far too long since I've seen a new one of those. I think I saw the last one I saw was Satyricon, and I was <laughs> a little put off by it. But I know there's yeah, yeah, got more great stuff. One. I've seen it several times, and it's not an easy film. Uh, Adam Davis wrote an interesting review about it. Uh, have you read it? Who did? Adam Davis. Oh, okay. Um, you know, the, no, I thought... the review about Satyricon. It's a good review. It's, uh... Yeah, I really admire what he's uh, what Adam's doing with um, watching all the Criterions all the way through, pretty much with very little um, other movies in between. So uh, yeah, to go back, check down what he had to say about that. That'd be yeah, it's a good good review. He Always really didn't like to hear it. His take. Yeah, he didn't like it. I can see why. And it took me three times to watch it. I don't think I'm going to watch it again. 
it's uh, it's a difficult one. And the Bizarrely, I, was... I think I liked Caligula more than I liked Satyricon. <laughs> and, All right. and that's Is probably that saying a lot. Most penthouse uh, adaption it was adapted by uh, the owner by, of Penthouse. Uh-huh. Uh, make it more appealing to a larger audience. Oh, you could say that again. <laughs> uh, well, that worked. Oh, what's uh, the worst film you've ever seen? Worst film I've ever seen. There are a lot of them. First one that comes to mind, Project X. Uh, Project X. Now that's a like a part uh, teenage party movie. Basically, Beavis and Butthead on steroids with even less intelligence. That's the best way to describe it. It's one of the rare, I think it's about one of five movies I actually stopped watching after 10 minutes. And I've, I've watched a lot of film. A lot of film. I've seen a lot of bad films, but nothing like that. It's just awful. Right. I, uh, I've seen several movies by... Um, um, the director of uh, Plan 9 of Outer, uh, from Outer Space, uh, Edward, I've seen several of his movies, and they are masterpieces compared to that one. <laughs> so oh, I just did no. All right, number 25. Any, most any underrated. Movies, uh, you want to name? Uh, the, of the worst variety? Um, yeah. I mean. I don't really seek out many bad movies, so I'm a little underwatched here. Um, and you try to watch, kind of go out for the classics, but um, bad movies. I mean, a lot of the stuff I go out, some of the stuff I go out and see with the kids. Um, like I saw like The Angry Birds 2 a few years ago, and I just felt miserable watching that one. Um, I've never seen that. <laughs> you're doing yourself a favor. Um so yeah, it's yeah the art of bad movies. It's it's something I need to get more of my head around. Um, I don't watch very many. I try to stick with the good ones. And shoot, sometimes you know you got these highly highly acclaimed films like what Harry and stuff, and I for some reason didn't care for it. And so it's it's interesting kind of you know going on a platform like Letterbox and kind of duking it out with people you know with their opinions. So mm. and the most underrated film is our last one. Most underrated film. I won't say Max. Um, okay. Most underrated. Oh, you won't say Max. <laughs> no, I won't say Max. It would be too easy. Most underrated film. That's a good one. Most underrated film. Mm, I'd say character. It's in the Netherlands. It's not underrated. It's uh, quite popular, but uh, internationally, it's not really that well known. Uh, it's a very well made movie. It's based on a That's book. Good. It's called Character. Character. It's set okay. in uh, Rotterdam in the 1920s, and it's between a, um, a young man who's trying to get up uh, from a, his mother is. Uh, Raised by his mother, he doesn't know who his father is. Um, he is trying to, to make something of his life. Um, he gets confronted with uh, poverty, working class, the fact that uh, the 40s don't care. And he particularly is in a, in a private war with a, uh, I think it's, a, oh, it's 25 years since I've seen it, um, with a bailiff who basically just evicts people I don't think you call it a bailiff, like a repo man for mm-hmm. houses. I don't know what you call it in English. 
Um, usually, yeah, yeah. Repossession. Usually, the bank forecloses on a home. Yeah, and this this about. man, this man does this in the 1920s, working class, and he gets in. A, this young man gets into a, a small war with this man, not knowing that this is actually his father. So oh. it's a very well-made movie, very well shot, uh, but it's not really well-known outside of the, the Netherlands. It's a Dutch movie, so subtitles. And a lot of people don't like subtitles. Yeah, I've, um, I've, I, can, I think I can finally say I've come around on them. My, uh, my ability to read it and watch it and take it in um, has come light years in the last five years, I would say. So... Um, but you'll have to do us all a big favor and put a lot of these recommendations down into a letterbox list so we can have a little easier access. Mm, that's um, good. I'll make a nice list of uh, films you see. Dutch films and uh, the European movies. Uh, I like making... Yeah, just... Uh, this week, maybe next, I'll uh, publish a list. Yeah, no rush. You always got time, hopefully. Oh, yes. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but right when we get back, we're going to slap on some blue fa uh, blue paint all over our faces, and we chat about little Pierre LeFou right after this. like a battleground there's love hate action violence death in one word emotion i am joined by my longtime letterbox follower and a friend max and we're going to be talking about a godard film um and i really didn't put much thought into you know you know what a guitard film would probably be like in this kind of format but um hopefully i'm prepared we will only see. Um, the synopsis, courtesy of Wikipedia, uh, Pierre Le Fou, which is uh, French for Pierre the Fool, is um, a 1965 French New Wave film by Jean-Luc Godard starring Jean-Paul Belmondo and Anna Karenina. The film is based on the 1962 novel Obsession by Lionel White. It was Godard's 10th feature film released between Alphaville and Masculine Feminine. The plot follows Ferdinand, an unhappily married man, as he escapes his dull society, uh, dull society life and travels from Paris to the Mediterranean Sea with uh, Marie, um, Marianne, a girl chased by OAS hitmen from Algeria, if they say so. So, um... It's a terrorist group that still exists. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did not know much right. about um, the French and the Algerians. I think... About everything I know about that, it comes probably up comes up in the Battle of Algiers. Yeah, it was. Uh, let me see if I remember correctly. Uh, it was a right wing French terrorist group found in sixty one or sixty two, and they wanted to stop Algiers from succeeding from France. They wanted to remain in the colony, and I'm not surprised it was part of this film that Marianne uh, was a member of this group. 
Um, God, this film is everything that Godard uh, was interested in or admired or uh, followed. Uh, you see Marxism in it, um, in this critique on bourgeoisie, which uh, uh, Pirot is. He calls him uh, Pirot, and Pirot is uh, sad clowns, uh, Comedia dell'arte. The so and she sees really sees what he is. Uh, at least in her eyes, he is a, a sad capitalist clown. So Marxist criticism. Uh, then there is um, Paul Part, Andy Warhol. And as far as I remember, Godard was pretty, or still is, as far as I know, uh, interested in Paul Part. But you also see um, more of a comic book approach. Mm-hmm. The way the, the, the scenes have, uh, are done, primary colors a lot, um, clear lines, so no no unnecessary details. It's uh, a lot of um, comic book, um, shot in the way of a comic book, which makes oh. sense because you have a storyboard if you want to make a movie, which really is kind of a, a comic book. Yeah. Um, so I spotted this on your watch list. How long had it been on kind of on your radar to watch? Like you had said, um, you had only seen Breathless not long, so uh, not long yeah, ago. Yeah, I'm kind of lacking Godard's uh, film. Uh, it's been on my list. Um, I've wanted to watch it for f- 20 years now. <laughs> Everything. They, 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 it's really embarrassing. Uh, there are a lot of films that I want to watch. They're on the list, but mm-hmm. never get around it. And this is probably the longest, uh, been the longest on my list. Twenty years. Oh, perfect! I'm glad I picked it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad you agreed. Um, oh yeah, uh, I no longer have an excuse not to watch it. <laughs> Uh, here's some fun facts about the film. Um, so, despite continual claims that Godard had shot the majority of his films without a script or preparation, actress Anna Karina um, has subsequently claimed what they were in fact very carefully planned out um, small details um, with an obsessive level of perfection. So, um, I can kind of see Yeah, that. I agree on that one. Uh, this was very well-organized improv. This, yeah, uh, kind of taking thoughts and putting them down somehow into a sequence and writing the dialogue apparently the night before to make it as poignant as possible. Yeah, you can get some pretty um, busy films that way. Okay. Yeah. This is the type of film you cannot just do on the fly. You need to plan ahead. You need mm-hmm. to plan it in detail. And Godard never does anything just for the fun of it. It's not that kind of a director. And if you're not too familiar with Godard, um, his quote about Pierre LeFou is, it's not really a film, it's an attempt at cinema. Oh, that's uh, not, clear. Not, that's <laughs> nothing like a Frenchman to say that. Oh, yeah. But it's true. I, I fully agree with that. Uh, it's uh, when he, uh, you see Samuel Fuller and uh, uh, Belmondo's character asked... Uh, I always wanted to know what cinema is, and Fuller explains it. It's emotion, and that's true. The worst films are probably the ones that don't create an emotion. And it can be mm-hmm. anger, it can be disgust, it can be hatred, frustration. Uh, but when there was emotion, there was a film. Even Project X, a movie I really do not like, created emotion. And that's really the end. Uh, it's entertainment. But having a good time is also an emotion. So film is about emotion. As soon as that's no longer present, uh, 
that the movie is failing. This is this is a fun fact that um, I didn't expect at all. Apparently, Godard wanted to shoot this in English with uh, Richard Burton and yes. Sylvia Vartan as the two main characters. This would've been interesting to see this film that's, I think, very much making fun of the United States, um, actually shot in the U. Uh, shot in English. Yeah, I, I have no idea what the idea was behind that one. Richard Burton is a very different actor. And then my to last see him one. in, in okay. that role would have been very, very interesting and very weird. <laughs> it's so counterintuitive on, on, on how Burton is. Very uh, Shakespearean actor. And doing a movie like this could have been a disaster, could have been brilliant. <laughs> it would have been interesting. All's, love, or all's fair in love and Godard. Um, yes. So he That's was still one. married to uh, Anna Karenina um, at that time. It kind of makes me wonder because there's a lot of – when I rewatched back through this, I was getting a lot more tension between the couple. Um, so, yeah, I'm wondering how much of that was actually in their own relationship. Mm, yeah, I think there was something going on there between all three of them. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the relationship between Belmondo and Karina was that good. Mm-hmm. At least from her point. I don't think she really was acting when she called him. She, she keeps calling. The thing is, every time she calls him Perot, um, he yep. gets frustrated. <laughs> and I don't think the frustration was acting. You can really see it. Uh, it's uh, it's there. Interesting, the movie was shot uh, back to France. So they started out in uh, southern France. Mm-hmm. And they worked backwards uh, to the beginning, uh, set in Paris. And you see uh, his angry reaction in the beginning. uh, For now, uh, it's not the Perot, it's Ferdinand. And I don't think I was acting. And then in the beginning, he's, yeah, it's it's not that. It's it's not Perot, I'm Ferdinand. I think he just accepted that that she felt contempt. Could be me, could be a projection. I'm seeing things that aren't really there, but I don't think it was acting. Although I don't think the marriage of uh, Karina and Godard was that that uh, doing well at that point. Mm-hmm. He kills her off in really a, a fast, very unglamorous uh, way. Yeah. Yes, the main character will, uh, just kill her off. So uh, I think that's one way of ending a marriage. Interesting stuff to think about there in terms of life imitating art um so one of my upfront questions here any uh so what are your opening thoughts on godard um kind of what are some of the movies you've seen from him a favorite at this point um and how does that relate with this one Mm, favorite i have to say it used to be alvaville i really liked that that film it's a french noir but noir in the french way so Less gangster, more intellectual. I like Breathless now more. Uh, there's just something about it that makes it. I enjoy it, but I enjoy all his movies. But there's something about Breathless that just makes it more. Um, it's accessible, but not easy. And I like that. He. Uh, 
And breathless, you don't get an easy. Um, you have to you have to work for it. Yeah, I feel that. I like it. Yeah, I'm really glad I had seen. So I think I've seen seven now, um, which really prepared me for this. Uh, Alphaville and Weekend are the ones that this reminded me the most of. Um, Imagine Weekend. In terms of Alphaville being kind of a genre of film and then Weekend just being craziness on film. Um, I would say Contempt's my favorite at this point just because I thought Contempt was so funny and how he's basically just kind of making fun of making movies while making a movie, which I got a real I've good kick out of. And I have to rewatch it. I put it in my watch list mm -hmm. because I felt I missed something. Okay. Um, I like... I like this movie. It's uh, like I said. It's uh, you have to work on it more than in Breathless. It's less accessible, but I did like it. Content. Um, I don't get it. I have to rewatch it. I really have the feeling I missed something, and more than with this than with Puro. And I can't really explain what it is that I missed. How long ago did you see that one? About 12 years ago, 11, okay. 12 years ago. Mm, yeah, something like that. And I haven't gotten around to it. I have, uh, I have it on DVD. I really need to watch it, but so many films I have to watch. Yeah, story, uh, story of my life, our lives. Um, so I kind of got a sneak peek into what you thought of this one because I, um, I saw you were online. And I was like, oh, so I, I saw last night, pretty wild film and. And you were saying you were really digging it. So um, how would you describe your experience? Um, I'll, I'll go first just to kind of set the, the ground. Um, this is kind of a movie where you could easily tune out because of the mundanity that um, Godard likes to you know, fill in the gaps of his movies with. And I really had no idea what was going on for the first hour. But then whenever kind of towards the end where we actually see the terrorists, um, it clicked that it was a satire. And then from then on out, I was really <laughs> digging how um, off kiltered it is, and um, yeah, I've I, I've since kind of watched it kind of in fast forward just to kind of get a grasp of all the scenes again. And then I watched the first half right before we started, so hopefully I'm prepared for this conversation. What was your experience like? Um... I can understand why I didn't see that it was satire until the second half, because the opening really throws you off. Mm -hmm. It starts out as a very conventional film. There's a man in a bathtub uh, reading uh, from a book to a four-year-old. I think she was four, a little girl. <laughs> little girl. Which is a very <laughs> odd scene. You have an adult man sitting in his bathtub reading a, a book about Vasquez to his three- or four-year-old daughter. And it really starts out conventional, and then you already see this little jump, like there are little um, frames missing. I don't know if you noticed it. He's in the uh, bathroom getting dressed, and then suddenly he's behind her. It's like there are a few frames missing, and that's sort of the indication that okay, oh. this is not going to be a, a this is going to be different, even for a Godard film. Although you already have that in Breathless, where you get the feeling that there are frames missing. Yep, a lot of jump cuts. Yeah, I didn't notice the jump cut there, but um, I believe you that it's, it's there. It's a sure. very short, very fast jump cut, and it works well. And from there on, it really begins. It's a satire. Um, 
there was alienation that already starts when he's at the party. You see everybody in monochrome colors except for him. Um, it's surreal. It's surreal. There's a reason why surrealism was invented by the French, mostly by the French. Yeah. Um, I just really love this. It's it, it's non-conventional. It's not always logical, mm-hmm. but it does it doesn't take itself serious, which also really helps. Um, you can have satire. You can have um, surreal imagery if it takes itself not too serious. If it becomes uh, Heavy-handed, it, it, it gets in the way of itself. Um, uh, all right. The thing, the thing that stood out most to me were by far the bright colors throughout. These bright blues and yellows and reds and occasionally green. Um, any thoughts on the colors and anything else really stand out and surprise you? Um, I think the colors really refer to uh, the French motto. The, the, yeah. The, the, uh, Equality, Liberty, fraternity, and freedom. Mm-hmm. And you see it in the opening with the lettering. You see red letters and blue yep. letters. And it also starts with the alphabet from A to B to C to D, which this film really does not. Because okay. it jumps around. Yeah, that was a really neat, interesting um, opening title there where it slowly fills in the gaps. Um, so you're saying that they, were, they posted the letters A to, A to Z? Um, First, you get the A letters and the B letters, the C okay. letters. And I noticed that well, that's different. I haven't seen that before. You yeah, see, normally you see a few letters, and then you see the. I think I don't think Woody Allen did this. So I've seen that before that the letters start appearing, and then you get words. But I've never seen it like alphabetically from A to mm-hmm. B to C to D. So that's already an indication that things are going to be different. And I really like that opening. And then you see him in the bathtub and it throws you because, okay, it's, it's going to be a, a normal drama movie, gangster-like. Mm-hmm. And you get the jump cut and it starts getting weirder. And those colors, it's pop art. It's um, comic books. It used to be the comic books were either black and white or very few colors. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's a reference to it. Um, lots of white and uh, red, white, and blue. Again, it's it's a reference to the French flag, the French identity. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that one scene where there's like in a building, and each like floor or each even window on this building had a different color. Um, not not all different colors, but you know, just the same kind of um, uh, same couple colors repeated over and over. I just really speaks to the you know the production design for him to insert um such bold uh color throughout because i mean what um alphaville is black and white so um yeah yeah it's 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 really cool to see uh directors like Godard and kurosawa really um take advantage of color not it's not just not just the way he's filming it. it's it's yeah, there's some purpose there yeah it's a it's a color noir it's uh, a film in one color. I think it might have one, been the very first one I've ever done. But... One uh, uh, one critique I saw was kind of describing it as a as pulp. Um, uh, I'm not too familiar with how to define pulp, and then they they were comparing it a lot to Pulp Fiction, which we'll get to. Um, what's an aspect of the story that surprised you? Yeah, 
him shooting her. Oh, the the, the ending. Okay. Yeah, that really surprised me. Because it, it also um, it shows that she's wrong about him. He's not a sad clown. He, hmm. if he wants to, he can bite back. So in the whole film, he basically goes along with her. Uh, they mm-hmm. fight. Um, they have these uh, stage accidents, which I personally thought was uh, very funny. That the whole uh, look, there's an accident there. There's also another thing. You see uh, uh, people getting killed. You see uh, in the beginning of the movie, you see the car accident. It's a very um, how can I put this? It looks more like an art installation. The whole accident. Okay. You have a body hanging over a tree branch, I believe it was. And then you have the car that looks just right. It's very, uh, maybe not an artist place, more like a commercial. Instead of selling milk or a new pair of shoes, we're selling a car accident. So it's very stylized, very neat. Was that when they um, blew up their own car? Yeah. Are you thinking before that? I think before that, we see the accident and so we can uh, imitate, look, there's an accident over there. We can do that too, fake our deaths. Oh, right, right. Okay. That one. And then they blow up the car. Okay. I think that's Godard also saying in capitalist society, we'll sell anything, even in a car accident. If it (laughs) can make us money. Ain't that the truth when it comes to insurance? Um, I would say the thing that surprised me most was it actually was this like on the run story, which like I said, it really didn't click for me that that was what was going on because there's so little focus on the fact that they're, you know, running from these guys. Um, and then in the end, it kind of had the feel of a James Bond satire to me. But then rewatching the beginning of it, it feels more like a Body and Clyde satire. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of, it can be a lot of, I a think lot it's of things. a satire on film. Uh-huh. It's different genres coming together. Uh, yeah. With a veneer of, of satire. It's, it's not it... easy to analyze this film. It's it's the most difficult he ever did uh, analyze wise. Um, you mentioning the bathtub a few times there. I was thinking more about um, Eyes Wide Shut, with how so much of that movie is shot in these um, indoor domestic places. The the bathroom. Uh, the kitchen and so forth with these these couples talking about these difficult topics of attraction. So kind of curious to go back and see Eyes Wide Shut now that I've seen a little more Godard and see if maybe Kubrick was um, on that wavelength. Um, does that sound, am, I, am I going out on a limb there or do you think there's anything to that? I don't know. I think it's a very chilly movie. I don't think, uh, for all his weirdness, Godard is a very warm filmmaker. Mm. And Stanley Kubrick, uh, I, don't, you know, I, don't, I don't agree on that one. I think Eyes Wide Shut is very cold, very distant. Okay. Very. I guess I was mostly thinking the the just the comparison being with Godard films so so off like Breathless. There's that scene where they're just kind of sitting in bed and talking for the longest time, and I think contempt. She's like in a bathtub or something. So just the idea of a couple talking in this very plain setting, I guess, was kind of what I was getting at. But yeah, you're absolutely right with um with uh, Kubrick being a more detached filmmaker for sure. Mm. 
Uh, you mean the uh, in the beginning when Tom Cruise and um, uh, Nicole Kidman are sitting on the mm-hmm. floor of the bathroom and they're talking, and as in uh, inspired by the the bathroom scene in Breathless? You mean that? Yeah, perhaps. Um, See, it's a yeah. good scene. It's probably the best scene in the whole film. In, uh, in Eyes Wide Shut. And so you should really see some emotion, some warmth between them. But that's, on the whole, it's a very cold, distant film, which oh. is pretty much a signature of Kubrick. Uh, you can accuse him of a lot of things, but his movies are not the warmest films in the world. Yeah, I think that um, I'm a huge fan, but I know a lot of folks that um, get a little uh, irritated with um, not finding them accessible at first. And I've always really enjoyed revisiting that. But... um. Back to uh, uh, Pierre Le Fieu. Um I'm going to run through um, the plot a little bit. And um, mm-hmm. these are my notes. And yeah, feel free to jump in and um, what have you on uh, what you think of these things. Uh, so we meet, our, we meet Ferdinand. He uh, was recently fired from a TV job. I'm not really sure if that matters or not. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's about to... It does matter. Because it, okay. It, um, it's a form... It's a... A fact of friction between him and his wife. Uh, I got the impression that he is not from a rich background. His wife is inherited money. Oh. His father is uh, in charge of a pretty big company. That's why also why they go to that party to get him mm-hmm. a job. And really, is basically not so much a husband as more of a, uh, a semi uh, pet for his wife. Okay. So kind him losing his job really goes takes away the last bit of respect she probably had for him. Okay. And, um, yeah, leaves, leaves, look. leaves them behind. Um, didn't he like shove some like cake in her face to kind of kick off his yeah. heading out of town? It was a very, um, screwball comedy thing. Yeah. It's, that's what we really see the, the different genres of comedy and drama and satire and road movie. Mm, that really kicks it off. Uh, <laughs> Runs off with a babysitter, but yeah. she's not your typical babysitter by any means. No, it's also interesting. There is an indication that uh, they had a, uh, they, they had a previous relationship, but the relationship was mm-hmm. uh, better and deeper than between him and his wife. You get a sense that he left her to marry his wife to basically get the money, which turned out to be not as uh, as wonderful as he expected. Okay. Is it just me, or is that a giant cigarette? Constantly has a uh, big old cigarette hanging out of his mouth, and it's quite substantial. Maybe it's just the fact that yeah, he probably rolled it himself. I think it's mm-hmm. himself. I don't think it's part of the character, because in Bre- uh, Breathless he has it. Mm-hmm. And I think I've seen two other films with him. But he also smokes. I think it's it's not so much uh, Godard who did this. I think it's the actor himself. Okay. And see that. Um, I was really on a on another watch. I was really admiring how poetic the dialogue was there in the beginning, and a lot of sexy language there. And then um, uh, there's a scene where you kind of see the male gaze in action, where he's like eyeing this like um, underwear model or a pantyhose deal in a in a magazine, looking down to the to the top and saying that it was the age of ass. <laughs> Talk about a quote there. 
Yeah, I read. I, I haven't done much reading after watching the movie, but I did read that. I think it was a meant as a commentary on uh, on how women are treated in society by Godard, mm-hmm. which I find slightly a stretch. But okay, yeah, I thought yeah, a lot of sex, um, sexism commentary throughout. Actually, a lot. Um, actually, talking about gender roles of men, but uh, we'll get there. Um, any thoughts on those flooded rooms in the um, at the party scene? In terms of, is it just stylistic, or you think it's is it saying anything to be? Because I think there was one scene where it was like he walked through half the frame; it was blue, and then it suddenly turned green. Um, anything to that? You think? I think it has meaning, but I have not figured out what it is. Yeah, fair enough. I think it says something about him that he's more uh, three-dimensional and the society now lives in the the, the, the the world of his wife is very monochrome, very uh, flat. Okay. I haven't figured quite out what he means with that. It's, uh, I have to rewatch it, really. Yeah, definitely recommend it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he talks to Sam Fuller um, through the one girl. And um, it's kind of funny how like how Fuller will like say something pretty elegant, but um, she, whenever she translates it to French, it's very um, brief and not quite um, the same eloquence. Uh, regardless, uh, what his quote is the one I set off the top there about what cinema is in terms of being um, all those things. Where is it? Okay, love, hate, action, violence, death, and one word emotion. And that's pretty much, I, I feel like it sets up the whole, what we're about to see for the next hour and a half. That's what I, what I said. The film is emotion. If there's no emotion, your film has failed. Do you, um, is there ever at times when you're watching this movie when you just think it's just random for the sake of random, or do you think everything has a, a meaning? Mm. I don't think there's random for the sake of random, but I do believe that at some point he kind of painted himself in a in a corner. I okay. think the ending was maybe not completely what he meant uh, to be. It feels rushed. Hmm. And it's an interesting take. Yeah, and didn't get quite the impression that he he wrote the script. And it got to a certain length. It needed an ending, and he came up with this. It felt really rushed. Could be wrong, but it, uh, if you compare it to Breathless, it's also quite abrupt. Abrupt. He gets shot in the street, mm-hmm. but it feels much more uh, a natural uh, development than in this one. Um. The topless lady at the party kind of caught my eye as being a little random, but then you listen to what she has to say, and it's she's kind of making a political statement. And then you go to the next room, and then there's another lady without a top on. So it's almost like this was kind of a party where you know a lot of a uh, a lot of eroticism was going on, perhaps. Um, going back to um, her apartment, um, real quick. Well. We're, we're going to get there, but um, I just, I found it random that there was guns <laughs> laying all over her apartment, but I guess the more I think about it, she is kind of a revolutionary um, side of her, and maybe that has to do with the whole Algerian thing. You might be able to speak better to that part. 
Yeah, that was an indication that she's not this uh, friendly, sweet uh, nanny and an ex-girlfriend of uh, of him. Uh, there's more depth to her, and she might be much more dangerous than he is. It's, uh, we tend to believe that the man is more dangerous than the woman. Uh-huh. And in this case, uh, especially this movie came out in the mid 1960s, so it was much more of an ideal, uh, the ideal woman in the form of Marilyn Monroe. And this is really just thrown out of the window. You see all these weapons lying around, and uh, good girls don't have weapons. And so this is not a good girl, not not whatsoever, not little, not one little bit. So it yeah. kind of throws you. Yeah, that's a major conceit. Now that I'm thinking about it, as you go through, um, there's a scene where they're in the there's car. There's also this very oh, in the car to drive them home, and yeah. there's this very traditional, uh, almost Hollywood-like uh, scene, sitting in the car talking. Mm-hmm. He's very dominant. He uh, he's in control and she's the innocent uh, young lady and then you see those weapons and you come to realize well, maybe things aren't quite what they seem to be that was the scene that reminded me a lot of Tarantino in terms of them talking in the car because I think they listened to a radio program and it's talking about the amount of casualties in Vietnam and, and she kind of takes a deep dive on you know what's it actually mean to you know see 115 dead people and he's kind of like tuning her out, but he, but she's going in all this great detail about it. And it seemed very, um, I, cause I've heard Tarantino is very inspired by Godard, but I hadn't really seen any good examples. But, um, for some reason that just popped to me as being one of these deep dive conversations that you would see in a QT film, um, just done with a little differently. So yeah, Tarantino did the whole car scene in Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. You can see it. It's, it's not a one-on-one, but it comes very close. It's a different conversation they have in Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. but the whole interaction and um, how it is depicted is very much reminiscent of uh, what's happening in this one. But um, towards the end of that scene, they get very uh, sensual with what they're talking about. Uh, it gets quite sexy, and it's pretty obvious that they uh, they uh, they make love after that. But none of that's um, none of that's in the movie. So, but it, it works it, just because it's so eloquently you know stated between the characters but yet we're i think um, it works i think mm-hmm. the, leaving that out really works for this type of film i don't think it would have worked <clears throat> if he had actually shown it it wouldn't have worked mm-hmm. and then we see the, the the guy killed by the scissors on the bed and uh, like you were saying earlier um it really kind of foreshadows what she's capable of this is not uh, your typical uh babysitter then mm. I I heard one um, group of, or one uh, criticism that was talking about her being a femme fatale. I'm not quite sure if I'm in line with that. How about you? Uh, she's not a femme fatale. She's a revolutionary, uh-huh. and she will do anything to get what uh, what she wants. And if that means sleeping with him, she will do it. It's also interesting that he, he, they haven't seen each other for quite a long time. That's it's quite mm-hmm. clear. And he has this idealized uh, idea of her. And that basically gets destroyed. He starts slowly realizing that she is not no longer the person he thought she was. This was I also, the- I, mm-hmm. I find it interesting. The movie came out in 65 and it was a really um, prophetic movie. 
because you see a lot of. I heard it made a lot second. of money. Yeah, no, but more prophetic for what things to come because you saw oh, a lot okay. of middle class kids in the second half of the sixties become revolutionaries. Oh, sure. And this was this was on what shot in '64 came out in '65 and mm-hmm. it's like Godard watched the future and said, "Well, oh, let's make a let's make it into a film." Great point. Um, one of the things that surprised me most on my um, quick rewatch was the fact that you actually do get your first musical moment um, in the apartment there whenever he's on the bed and she starts kind of singing to him, and then it cuts to him and he's just like. What are you doing? And um, yeah, for some reason, the first time I watched that, I did not catch it all that she was that she was singing. Mm-hmm. It's strange how you can miss stuff on a first glance on some of this. Um, did you catch that? Yeah. I thought, okay, musical. So that's one of the elements: uh, road movie, musical, satire, comedy. It's, uh, a little everything. It. Yeah. Cinema, like you said, <laughs> or he said. Yeah. And then um, I forget where they go, but. They run into what appears to be a former lover of hers, and she's kind of like shoo him away. So there's another instance where you know she's with quite a few men. So maybe he should uh, proceed with caution. Yeah, first of all, okay, uh, spurned lover, uh, maybe coming back for her. But later on, you realize he's also part of that whole group of hers. So is it a lover or is it just one member who's afraid that she's abandoning uh, their group? Except you don't really realize that until uh, later. I thought it was interesting. Definitely, as an American, definitely stood out to me that they show the little uh, Statue of Liberty they have there in Paris. And uh, mm. I think that's kind of, I think they definitely pointed that out because we're going to get to some satire of America coming up soon. Um for sure get the Bonnie and Clyde feel whenever they're at the gas station. And um, I love the line she says, uh, she would look a little less suspicious. So whenever they get the drop on the one guy and slam the, the hood over his head. And um, <laughs> it cracked me up that she runs into the second guy and, you know, he's not like freaking out or anything. He's actually starts giving her a lecture on stealing and how, how she should go get a job, which is not exactly what you would expect from, um, you know, confronting somebody who just... Uh, basically mugged your uh, colleague. Yeah, so she said uh, the Lauren Hardy approach. This really was a Lauren right. Hardy uh, moment. Mm-hmm. I liked it. It worked. It was funny. It's, uh, it really shows that this is not a movie you should take too serious. Mm-hmm. Um, are you a fan of Wes Anderson at all? Uh, yeah, I like his movies. Um, Him and Paul, uh, uh, what's his name? The other Anderson. Oh, Paul, Paul Thomas uh, Anderson. Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, they kind of go dark, but American style. Yeah, I was noticing a lot in his cutaways. It seemed very um, Anderson-ish with um, how scenes are shot kind of um, from the side, um, kind of in a storybook fashion in those cutaways with the, the mm-hmm. pop art you had uh, mentioned earlier and, and later on um, his writings and the diary. Yeah, it's interesting that he had a diary to write down. He's more of an intellectual than he, than, than he gets credit in the beginning of the film. Yeah, yeah. I was, um, you had compared him to more of a, um, did you say a bourgeois guy or a capitalist? Yeah, it was a petite bourgeois uh, uh-huh. capitalist, more interested in um, comfortable life. 
more uh, mm-hmm. exterior and less interior. And it really is in the middle of the film where you see and they get into that they get on the island. They're hidden and he has books and he reads and he writes. Yeah, yeah, more of a bohemian was, kind of um, yeah. intellectual. She wants to continue the revolution. She gets bored. Yep, she and wants money. The whole image gets flipped. She's no longer that innocent girl, and he's no longer the rich man who doesn't have any uh, interior life. And I found it interesting. And then it gets flipped again at the end because a sad clown turns out to be a, a <laughs> dangerous clown. She has no problems in shooting her and other people when necessary. And then um, a lot of conversation between them in the car is, is very interesting. How she's picking on him, saying, like, guys, like, you are, are always sorry. And, you know, you're just driving down the straight line or whatever. And it drives him to um, drive the vehicle into the, the water for no apparent reason. And, and it just kind of holds on that as they wander off. It was Godard's own car, by the way. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it, it sank to the bottom. They couldn't get it out as far as I know. So it was actually good how sacrifices on car for film. So that's, uh, that's love for film. If you're willing to sacrifice your own car. <laughs> and she doesn't think he, she, uh, he has a stomach for killing, but, you know, little will she, uh, she'll find out um, to the contrary later on. Um... Yeah, it's really what stands <laughs> out for me that you never can be sure what you see. And it's a film, you get images, you get an idea, and it gets flipped around, and then it gets flipped around, and it gets flipped around. In the end, you really don't know what you saw, and you really don't know why you stand, because it's, uh, you're never sure. Might be a comment on life, that you never really know where you are in life, but that's not an easy man to analyze. No, not at all. Um... There's the, the scene you had talked about a little earlier, the car crash scene, and it's really bizarre because it's like in kind of an overpass, but it's just one piece of it. So it fell off this overpass that's totally disconnected. Um, and they're saying that it needs to be, uh, this isn't a movie, it, it, needs, it needs to look real, but yeah, we're looking at it and it's extremely fake looking. So very uh, juxtaposition there. Um, they dropped the political yeah, line. Yeah, almost like an installation. Uh, the political line that uh, the, the gun that she uses to blow up the car and which ends up <laughs> destroying the money, uh, I guess, killed Kennedy. So, yeah, I, I still haven't figured out what that meant. I thought it was such an odd line. Uh, and it's the money that killed Kennedy. Okay, I, I, I um, rewind, I watched it three times, I still can't figure out what it means. Huh. It's the money that killed Kennedy. Well, I died so, probably, I mean, being there in the 60s, um. Probably the uh, sort of discussion about, I guess, if that was an internal job or whatever, might have been running rampant. And um... yeah, I don't think it was back, very common back then. I think okay. uh, the whole conspiracy thing started much later. I think the early seventies. Okay. I don't know. I haven't figured that out. I really have to watch maybe that scene that, again. Because... Maybe the prophetic thing again. Yeah, could be. Um, there's that book he's reading with the cartoon of the thugs on it. Um, the Tin Foot Gang. Yeah, that, that really was an indication that what you see is maybe not that um, realistic. Maybe it's all a bit of a, a comic book. 
Yeah, and that it definitely the reminded me of the fellows that are coming after him. Oh, the Ford station's quite the funny scene where they, they carjack a car that slowly goes up in the air and slowly comes back down. Um, oh, and then let's see here. Discussion about the wife said about him in the paper. Oh, that's right. They're having a conversation about like his reaction to the the wife commenting to the press about um, you know, them taking off. So so packed full of all these little details you you pick up. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then, uh, mm-hmm. it picks, it, it depicts a really interesting, uh, it paints a really interesting picture of, of who he is, of uh, to his wife, and it reinforces the, the, the whole, um, she doesn't have any respect for him, that was already indicated at the beginning. Yeah, I will get you a job. Uh, my father will get you a job, and he will take the job. And, oh, and yeah. And get the interview. Mm-hmm. It really shows that uh, he's not hes not a man who's respected by women. That's, uh, that's a thing, because every woman he uh, interacts with doesn't really respect him. Yeah, I can see that. And then um, there's a scene where he, he looks back, and they're like, oh, yeah, and there's talk, he's talking to the audience now. So um, the conceit of it being a film... Good old Godard. Let's see here. A um, little talk about uh, the U.S. and Russia in terms of the Cold War and the space race. A little more little politics thrown in there. A lot more sexy talk as they're and they've arrived in the Mediterranean, very tropical looking. All of a sudden, there's this this beautiful looking parrot, wherever that came from. Yeah, it was also interesting. You have a fox and a parrot. I don't think the parrot was chained up, but the fox was. Oh, okay. That was a very interesting uh, scene. I don't know. Is uh, is it the symbolism? Uh, the fox and the parrot are there. Are him and her? Hmm. See the fox. It it has meaning, but I haven't figured out what the meaning is. I remember that part being very dull in their conversation. Like all, like we spent all this time with this real interesting battle of the sexes kind of. Uh, talk in the car and then they they sit down here and all of a sudden it gets it's real good it's, it's real dry again so yeah you never know it's, uh, do you know anything about jules verne sorry do you know anything about jules verne uh very famous french uh writer still very okay. uh in high regards back then um I think right before it gets interesting again, she says something like, "Oh, enough Jules Verne. Let's get back to the detective novel." Um, so it kind of swings yeah, back kind in of that more action. Fool me. I've read a couple of books when I was a kid, but uh, it's almost forty years ago, so I don't quite understand the reference. Get a little bit more commentary about uh, Vietnam with them entertaining the, uh, I guess, the GIs there with her getting dressed up in yellow face and him acting like a cocky American. Um, I think they do that to get some money, a little more third yeah. wall breaking. Um. It's also interesting that because um, Vietnam already was a problem for uh, France long before America came in, in oh, yeah. right after World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, before World War II, before World War I, there already were tenses that they wanted to be uh, independent. And then in the 50s, you had the whole Vietnam uh, War Part 1, uh, Indochina, really, the Indochinese yep. War. Um, so to see that, uh, it's 
I think it's partly a commentary on what was happening at the time, uh, what America was doing, but also a pretty hefty commentary on what France had been doing in Mm -hmm. uh, what was then Indochina. So I think it was more, uh, hey, we did it, we left, and now it's going on. It's just uh, Mm -hmm. new masters, old practice. Then we get your uh, typical Godard uh, dance scene in that little um, cafe there. And he talks to this guy and he's like, hey, I remember you. You, uh, I gave you all this money and you slept with my wife. All right, see you later. That <laughs> was even weird. More that emasculated than himself. Oh, yeah. it, was, it was weird. I liked it. It was funny, but also weird. Just okay. throws you. You think something's going to happen. Fist fight, uh, shouting mats. I want my money. I don't know. Bye. See you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Is that it? And we finally get to the gangsters. Uh, we have the little dude um, who has this huge walkie-talkie, this huge bottle of Coke, and this huge gun. Then we get that great shot where he's pointing it at the camera. And the famous shot of her with the scissors at the camera right before he what dies off screen. Mm. I yeah, think... Uh, definitely one of the um the scenes that really clicked for me is when we we get because how intense that whole um I, I read it was called waterboarding but just like spraying the water in the face to kind of make to torture to torture him um that definitely is a contrast that moment. surprised me mm-hmm. i didn't know what already existed back then to see it in a movie because nowadays we know what waterboarding is but to see it in a movie from 1965 was kind of a surprise yeah. Probably the funniest film uh, part for me is whenever he's just sitting on this boat eating this enormous thing of cheese with um I'm not even sure what kind of spread what that was but uh yeah that was a that was a riot I almost kind of took that as an um kind of American um you know you know how Americans t- tend to overdo things with uh, you know the, the big gulp or you know whatever in terms of consumption um so that's kind of what rang a bell for me there. Yeah, it's uh, it's also a very quiet scene. It's probably the scene where the least things happen, even when they're uh, alone with the, the the fox and the the parrot when they're talking. Still, things happen, and it's a real quiet scene. Maybe it's uh, the the quiet moment before the storm. Yeah, but there isn't much happening. It's a very simple, very straightforward, very non-godard scene. Um, and the part that kind of reminded me of a James Bond thing was there's a scene where they jump in a car and they drive off and he throws the hat. Just a very uh, a very Hollywood ending kind of thing going on. And I think he flashes cinema up on the screen. And then they do almost the exact same thing a moment later, but <laughs> go off in a boat. <laughs> so he's yeah, strange moments. Yeah, it's one of those things I haven't figured out yet. <laughs> And Maybe it's that... just uh, mm-hmm. uh, a tribute to, to road movies. And, uh, I don't think there were many, oh, yeah. very many road movies back then. So okay. it was a funny scene, though. She just throw... I Also, I don't think that was actually planned, uh, her throwing that hat. Mm-hmm. I got the feeling that it was one of the very few things that were completely unplanned, that she just threw it because it, it looked very spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very... Uh... A very f- fin- um, final shot esque and yeah, yeah, pretty comical. Um, let's see here. Then we get the whole musical number on the beach, which is just out there. You get all the the colors all over again. Now we are finally getting to the end. <laughs> really I think it also is uh, 
connected to the party at the beginning of the film. In the beginning, oh, you sure. see um, the rich, and at the end, you see the simple people, and there's much more warmth mm-hmm. with the second party scene. But there was also connection. Those people are not as um, good, and there's no noble working class environment. You have the English kitchen sink dramas where you see that often the noble working class people. You don't really see this in this one. You see the awful rich people. Yep. And later on, you see the awful working class people. They both lack uh, an inter- internal uh, world. They're much more external orientated. It's much more uh, possession and less intellectual. And you don't have to be rich to have that. I think that. At least that's my interpretation of it. And then, so we, we've been hearing about this so-called brother character the whole time, but it turns out that he's actually her real love. And so she takes off with him. Um, he starts to follow along, but he gets stuck at, he gets stuck at this dock. And he's talking to this fella who's talking about like the music of his life. And it's this total digression. I just... <laughs> That was hilarious. How like you know he really should be chasing after this other boat, but he's just sitting there bullshitting with this guy, and you know that's Godard for you. <laughs> it really was a film in a film. It's like yeah. almost like he walked from one film into another, and uh, almost Fellini-like uh, um, discussion. Yeah. I like that. Um, but he does go after them. Ends up on the island. Um, he kills the guy and. It was my impression that he accidentally killed her. Um, do you think that was intentional or accidental? That's a difficult one. He seems very regretful afterwards, which kind of sparks the whole TNT. I think the character accidentally kills her, but I think Godard had to tell something again to her about the state of uh, the state of their marriage. <laughs> gotcha. So it's, uh, it's a double-edged sword. It's uh, the character is innocent, but the director is very guilty. Oh, nicely said. Um, and then the end. The end's hilarious. How uh, he paints his face in blue. I'm not really. I guess that just kind of falls back into these colors that we keep going to. I think that was um, a reference to uh, the the meaning of the color in the French flag. Okay. Yeah. I and then remember, I think blue stands for for uh, freedom. Um, yeah, if I'm thinking back to uh, the Three Colors trilogy, right? And then I think wa- uh, white is... Um... Huh. I think red's fraternity. I'm not sure what white was. Red was fraternity. And... Let's see. Now, red is brotherhood. Uh, I think white's for freedom. Freedom. Okay, that makes sense. I think it was... Um... Also, interesting enough, I wonder on the boat, uh, you see everywhere, you see French flags, except on the boat mm-hmm. uh, they're sitting on. It's a Dutch flag. So that was oh. odd. It was the only Dutch flag on, of all the, the boats. It was the only one with a Dutch flag. Hmm. So I still have no, is it a coincidence or is that on purpose? But knowing Kodat, he doesn't really do accidents. <laughs> so that was uh, an odd one. Yeah, it cracked me up. So, uh, yeah, he paints his face blue, um, has this enormous strand of yellow dynamite, this enormous strand of red dynamite. And it's hilarious to see him try to wrap this around his head and tie it off. And (laughs) then he lights a bunch of matches and about to blow. But then he's like, oh, I don't want to do boom. (laughs) And that's the way it's a it's it's a fun ending. 
it really That's works too. So really the only way he could go because I don't see him walking off alone in the sunset. Uh-uh. He calls the authorities. Yeah, it's pretty much it. And then the the camera um, slowly pans out to the middle of the sea to to, to end it. It's um it's something else. Cinema. Yeah. Um, I'm really yeah. glad I, I started to wrap my head around what it is. Um, gosh, I'm. To- I saw. I'll, I'm kind of stuck at a four rating, but I think it's better than that. But <laughs> oh gosh, I still have to think about it. Um, you know, what are your final thoughts and your and rating? Mm-hmm. I gave it a four and a half because it's it's very good and it's close to perfection. Nice. There are certain things that I just, um, certain things I really didn't like. I think Godard was working out uh, issues with his wife. Yeah. And it seeped into the film, which made it less strong than it could have been. If that wasn't the case, I probably would have given it the five stars, because I really, really like this film. Nice. I think it's probably his best film, together with Breathless. Yeah, I'll have to watch Contempt again, but yeah, it's between, right now it's between this and Contempt for my favorite Godard. Um, mm. Weekend's pretty wild, too. Definitely recommend checking that I'm out at some point. To, yeah, I need to see it. I have a very long list of movies that I want to buy. Yeah. And uh, I have a girlfriend who says, well, maybe not a good idea right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I can relate there. Well, thanks so, so much for joining me on the show and staying up extra late. Um, we're quite the time difference between us, so I appreciate you. Staying a little, up a little late to talk movies with me. I once said to my girlfriend, she asked me, uh, I can wake you up for what in the middle of the night? Oh, this is one of those things you can wake me up for. Okay. Conversation about film. Awesome. Um, how do people uh, follow you, ask you questions or the like? Uh, follow me on, uh, I'm on Letterboxd, on Max Hoffman. Um, if I write a review, which does not happen very often, uh, leave a comment and I will react to you. And awesome. if I see a review by you or someone else and I like it, I will react to that. Yeah, that's I'm always... not the most accessible man, but if you try, <laughs> I will react. Well said, well said. Well, please follow the Average Joe's Movie Club cast on YouTube and look for my reviews on Letterboxd. And thanks again so much, Max. It's been a wonderful conversation. Um, have a great every day. Have a great day, everyone, and keep watching great movies. So much out there.